Oh, that's a lot better. Uh, I am uh, teaching this morning on uh, Matthew 5, uh, 1 through 12. You will, I'd, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles there. Uh, that's where we'll stay most of the day, uh, most of the morning. And I must tell you that, yeah, uh, most of the day, yeah. We might. The Spirit leads. We might. <laughs> the Spirit won't lead me, I, I promise you that. All right, uh, we're going to be we're going to be looking at uh, what's commonly known as the Beatitudes, and I must confess to you, I don't I don't want to teach this passage to you uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, so convicting to my own heart. Uh, I'm not a picture of this by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Eric and I were just talking beforehand about about this passage and how convicting it is, uh, and I thought even this morning as I was praying. There was part of me that was wanting to go to my archives and pull out a talk that y'all haven't heard and just give that one because I don't, I don't want to teach this because it's so convicting to my heart. Uh, another reason I don't want to teach this is because it's such a common passage that it's taught on a lot by better men than me, uh, by far better men than me. Uh, and so uh, I'm a, this is one of those passages where you probably have a good bit of knowledge about it, and if I say something stupid, you'll know it, and I'll be found out. And so... Uh, I'd rather talk about something that I like, you know, Ecclesiastes, because most of us haven't read that book, and, and you wouldn't know one way or the other, so I would look a lot better. And so I'm, I, I, there's a, in, in teaching a passage like this, there's a lot of ways to be exposed, and so I don't want to be, be exposed, and that's part of my sin and my, my struggle. Uh, but I am teaching it uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I think uh, uh, mainly because it's been sweet to me over the last... Uh, Month I've been this this semester my personal time with the Lord I've decided that I want to meditate on all the words of Jesus just everything that He says and uh, and not because those are better words than the words of Paul that's all God's word uh, but that I just am not nearly acquainted I'm, I'm just more acquainted with Paul than I am with my Savior uh, and so I want to hear from him his teachings which Paul builds his teachings off of. Uh, and so I wanted to go back to the rock of my salvation, to the, to Jesus, and um, and really just hear from Him. And, and this is something you may not know, but if you were to take Jesus' words and just say them all at one time, we would only really have about a 50-minute lecture. There's really not that much recorded about what Jesus said. Uh, and so what what precious words of our Savior we do have, I want them to be written in my heart. I want them to be written on my heart. And so uh, I started to, uh, that's one of the reasons why I chose this passage uh, is because it's something that's been sweet to me. And the other reason I chose it is because I think it is something that we need to hear, uh, especially as a church in the South, in a culture, in the culture of Christianity, what distinguishes what distinguishes uh, a biblical or a, a, a God-centered, uh, God-loving, God-exalting body of believers from the masses. I think last time I spoke, I, I, I wish I'd have looked this up beforehand, but the, the, the ratio of people in a church in Alabama is there's, there's one church for every 300 people. That is a ton of churches. We are saturated with churches. And so really, in Calhoun County, I should have looked up the stat, but I'm sure it's very, very close to being... Uh, Come being true to that number, if not more. Um, and so I feel like we. What's going to distinguish us? Is it our theology? Is it that we're led by elders? Is it that you know what? What, what is it that's going to distinguish us? And I think this passage and this the Sermon on the Mount is what distinguishes the believers uh, from the rest of the world. And so uh, I think it'll be good for us as a church. Uh, I want to just start by giving you the context very quickly. Of just of the Beatitudes. And I, does anybody know what, the, what Beatitude means? It's not in the Bible. It's like a subheading. I didn't. had no clue. Uh, I, I actually thought it was a being attitude. You know, like to be. An attitude of to be. And that's uh, really not what it is. Uh, it's, the word comes from beautiful. To, to, uh, and it, it comes from happiness or blessing. Uh, and it really a Beatitude is a virtue that is blessed. That's really all it is. Which is... 
pretty easy to see from the, from the text. But I just had never thought about it. So what, what is the context behind this? Well, what you have to understand about Matthew uh, and about what's going on here is that Jesus, when He comes and He's preaching the Gospel, He is constantly calling it the Gospel of the Kingdom. And as I, as I thought about this, I, part of me wishes I would have maybe today taken some time for us to kind of meditate and discuss what is the kingdom. Because the kingdom, in Jesus' mind, is a big deal. A very big deal. I did a quick little word search before, uh, before I, when I was doing this. And it, it wasn't a very good one because I typed in the word love. Just L-O-V-E. I didn't type in L-O-V-E-S because I was just doing something. This was just something that popped in my mind I wanted to see. But L-O-V-E in English in the New Testament, I'm sure it comes up more than this because L-O-V-E-S will come up a lot too. But just the singular word comes up ten times in Matthew. In Matthew, L-O-V-E comes up ten times in English. Uh, Mercy. Mercy comes up seven times in English. Uh, Repent. Repent comes up, is, is, is only mentioned three times. The actual word repent, not repentance. Not, I'm, this was a really bad search idea. I want you to hear that. But, uh, and I realized that this morning as I was praying over this stuff, this was a really bad search. But, all the more, uh, believe. The word actually to believe is only in there seven times in Matthew. Kingdom, kingdom 53 times. He uses the word kingdom 53 times whenever he's talking about the gospel. And it, any of those words of that mean to believe or to repent or to come to Christ, the kingdom's always right there. Jesus is talking about the gospel of the kingdom. You see, for for the gospel is is that there is a kingdom coming. Jesus is the king, and he's going to reign over it. And we as his people are setting it up. We are preparing it. And in one sense, the kingdom has already come. The king, do you all realize that? We are already under the reign of Christ. We are, the kingdom has already come. And this is, there's this weird concept in the Scripture of the already, but the not yet. And the kingdom is like that. It's already here, but it's not yet fully here. It's just like our salvation. We're already saved, but we're not fully saved. We will be fully saved one day from the presence of our sin and the power of our sin completely. So we're already saved, but we're not fully saved. The kingdom is here. Jesus has already come. Listen to what He says. Repent for the kingdom of, God, kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3.2, Matthew 4.17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says it again. Matthew 4.23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The kingdom is this great paradise that's coming where Jesus will reign. And it's not by accident that he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing sickness. What what he's doing there is he's showing this kingdom is going to be good. It's going to be great. Sickness is not going to be there. Look at the power that the king has. That when this kingdom is set up, there won't be no sickness. It will be fully healthy. There won't be any disease. And so the kingdom is a big deal. And honestly, I, I think I have a very weak kingdom theology. And I would bet... All of us do. It's not something we talk about and think about much. And so even if I was preparing, I thought, maybe I need to spend my time discussing the kingdom. And maybe if I get another chance, I will. But do know that the kingdom has been established. It has been set up, and now we're building it. It's been established, and now we are building it. And one day it will be fully complete. Uh, and it, the way I like to think of it is, is everybody in here, maybe not everybody, have you all seen Air Force One, the movie Air Force One? Anybody seen that? Harrison Ford's the president. And this really helped me understand the idea of the kingdom. President Ford's the president. I mean, Harrison Ford's the president. He's on Air Force One, gets hijacked, families, everybody's in danger. Harrison Ford's a hero. He saves everybody, kills everybody that's a terrorist, and they all fly out the plane. And then the Air Force One is going down into the ocean and is going to die. And there's this bomber that happened to be in the be in the area that sends a zip zip line over to the Air Force One. They hook it on to the president. He's dangling out of the... He's dangling out of the plane, and they're reeling him in. Everybody knows this scene? Well, one of the great scenes, I think, in the whole movie, probably the best scene, the climax, is when uh, Washington's in the back. They're Washington's all standing around the phone, screaming at this bomber. 
Do you have the president? Is the president safe? And nobody would answer over and over again. Is the president? Is the president safe? And finally they answer, but they don't answer by saying the president's safe. They answer by saying, Bomber 714 is now changing call signs. We are now Air Force One. You remember that? Because where the president is, that's where Air Force One is. It's the same with Jesus. Where he is, that's where the kingdom is. So he's come. He has already come and established it and said it's coming. And I, I, you are my people and you're going to be building it. And you're going to, I'm, we're healing disease. And we are. We are building a kingdom in a lot of ways. We are, we are making the kingdom better on earth, aren't we? We're, we're, we're trying to cure diseases. We're trying to end poverty. We're trying to do the things that establish a better kingdom. And Jesus is saying it's coming. The role of the believer is to prepare the kingdom. And so what the Sermon on the Mount is, it is a description, it is a sermon about what the people in the kingdom will look like. It is a description of kingdom people, believers, the church. It's a description of what you and I are supposed to look like, the way we're supposed to live. And more importantly, our, our disposition before the Lord. And so, you get to uh, verse 3. And he, let, me, let me read this. Uh, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And when, he, and when he was seated, the disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so he starts out with a list. And I'll tell you another reason why I didn't want to preach this sermon today. And that sounds really weird for me to say preach a sermon. I don't never say that. But from, it's because this is so meaty. This is so big. And I struggled. I wrestled with this with Bethany. Bethany and I had a conversation in the car the day. I was like, I just don't know what to do. Should I... Should I just give an overview, go through each one of these attributes, define it very quickly and say what it should look like in our lives? Or should I, should I take one or two of them and just really kind of dive in, knowing I might not get the chance to ever do them again? What, what should I do? And Bethany and I talked, so she, she said, maybe an overview would be better. And so I thought, okay. So I went to look at it, and I was like, I can't do an overview. It's too much. I would just, and this is so much, so meaty. I, I would be up here all day like I said earlier, and so I did not want to do that. And so what I'm going to do today is we're going to look at this list. And I'm going to give you a, 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 just a quick definition of this list or four things about this list that you need to know. And then we're going to look at what it means to be blessed, what it means to be poor in spirit, what it means to mourn. And I'm going to leave you with that uh, and hope that this will encourage you to go back and look at the rest of them. Uh, so that you will, uh, so that you can see more what God's call on your life is. So let me start with this. This list. Uh, it is a description. Just, just plain and simple. It's a description. He starts here. He's about to describe. He, he will describe what what the believers will do here in a little bit. But he starts with their attitude. He starts with their disposition. He starts with uh, a description of their character. So that's what this is first and foremost. It's a description of the kingdom people. Another thing to note about this list, the second thing is that it is an internal list. This is an internal list. All of these things are, are issues of the heart. The poor in spirit, mourning, um, being meek, uh, thirsting and hungering after righteousness, uh, pure in heart, merciful. These are all issues of the heart. This is not... Uh, this is not a list of things that you can attain or that you can do. It's not a, it's not, this is not a list of things that you're commanded to go and do. This is a list of an internal description of someone who is in the kingdom who has seen the king. This is someone who, is, who has seen the king for who he is. This is not, this is not something you can muster up. You can't wake up tomorrow and say, okay, I'm going to be poor in spirit. I'm going to be more merciful. Have you, have you, you got that person at work that you hate? You know, you know maybe you won't say hate because you're a Christian and you're not supposed to hate, but you don't really like them. 
There's not much difference. And you don't love him. And you might even use phrase like, I don't have to like him, I just have to love him. You know, as if there's a huge separation there. But have you ever tried to go to work the next day and say, okay, I, 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 choose, I choose to love him. And we're told to do that, right? Choose to love. Love is an action. But have you ever been able to just start feeling love? Just wake up. I feel loving towards. I just feel more loving today. It's not something you can muster up. It is something that is. Maybe you do say, God, I want to love more. Help me to love more. And you resolve to become more loving. But the only way you become more loving is if God works in your heart and changes you. So this is, this is huge. Because the next thing I want you you realize the Christian life is not conformity to a list of laws. It's not conform, It is inward change by king. Okay, it's not conformity to a list of laws. The whole sermon makes this point later in Matthew 7 when, when, when one of the scariest passages in the Bible, after he's talked about what kingdom people will look like, he mentions a couple of people who will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do a lot of righteous, great things in your name? cast out demons, perform miracles, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. So your resume is no good with me. I didn't know you internally. The Christian life is lived internally. And that flies in, the, in our culture a little bit, flies in the face of our culture a little bit. In our culture, you just buck up and do what's right, and that's a good Christian. I think you need to know that this list is not only an internal list, but it's also an indictment. It's an indictment because if I, if I was Jesus and I'm preaching to, to the disciples, the group that's following him around, right here on my right would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There would be religious leaders waiting for me to mess up. They're listening and hoping that I will mess this up. As I'm saying this to the, to, to, to the people of God, the religious people are being indicted for their lives. Your prayer and fasting twice a week doesn't matter. How much the fact that you give money to the poor doesn't matter. The list of things that you do and say it don't matter. You're not because you're internally you don't know me. Internally, you haven't been changed. It is easy. It is. It is easy to become self-righteous if morality is our standard. If morality is our standard of Christianity. Just doing the right things, because we can do those, can't we? You can do you can do right things and not be a Christian. People, do, I mean, that happens all the times. So this is an inter- it's an indictment on our lives. We live in a culture where you can be involved in the culture of Christianity, and you can miss the person of Jesus. And I say this all the time to our students, but it's true. And one of the ways you can know if you've missed him is if your life is just a bunch of rules and lists that you follow, but internally you haven't been changed. If we are a church that thinks we are good because we have a couple of things right, we think we're a good church because we have elders and because we're reformed and we have right and we value the Bible, but we're arrogant and proud and if we, if we are not meek, we, we're not a good church. We're not a biblical church. We're, we, we are not what God has wanted us to be. And I'm not, I'm not saying we're not. I'm just saying what we want to be is this. We want to go deeper in this. And please, let me make this disclaimer before I start. This should convict everybody in the room because none of us are perfectly like this. But I am not trying to say that we don't have hints of this in our life. I'm not trying to say there's not some of this. And that if you're not arrived perfectly, if you're not completely poor in spirit, then you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this is where we go. This is where we have, how we evaluate our lives is internally how we relate to the Lord, not externally how we do at work or how, how good we raise our children with the Lord. Those things are right and good things to evaluate, but the walk with the Lord is internal. Uh, the last thing you need to know is about this list is it's a des- description of a people, not different peoples. What I mean by that is there's not separate groups here. It's not the meek over here and those who thirst and hunger after righteousness over here, righteousness over here. And we're going to put all the pure and hard in the back. And that these are separate things. They're not. This is the, the, the disposition, the, the mental disposition of a, of a 
Christian is all of these things. This is, it's, it's very similar in my mind to the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we, if, if y'all did the Keller study not too long ago, we talked about the fruit a couple years ago, I guess. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit. And a lot of times the way we evaluate the fruit of the Spirit is we say, well, I'm very self-controlled, but, I'm not, but, I'm not, but I need to grow in patience. I'm not very patient. As if the, the fact that I'm great in self-control is a fruit of the Spirit and that my patience is, is not. But the, what we understand about fruit, or what we understand about the fruit of the Spirit, is that it's one fruit. That it's linear, right? It is not that there's all these different things we're trying to attain, but there's a fruit of the Spirit that's in our life. It plays out in patience and in self-control. And if you're super self-controlled, but you're not patient, you're not patient, then your self-control is probably more likely just attributed to your personality, not to the fruit of the Spirit. You were probably self-controlled before you became a Christian, right? And so, in the fruit of the Spirit, this is something good to remember. Where you are, where you're the weakest, that's where you are spiritually. There's no checks and balances. Well, I'm weak here and I'm, I'm strong here. So, you know, that because that can really make us feel, have kind of a false view of ourselves. I think we're pretty good spiritually, you know. You know I know I'm not very patient, but, you know, but I am. I'm very self-controlled. No, no, no. You're just a control freak in general. And that's just who you are in the, in the flesh. So where you are, where you're weakest, uh, where you're weakest is where you are spiritually. That's what we. That's how we, the fruit of the spirit is. And I, this is not the fruit of the spirit, but I, it's it's, very, it's not the same thing, but it's very very similar. You're not meek and not merciful. You're not going to be poor in spirit, but not be compassionate towards people or merciful towards people. So you're not going to say, "Well, I'm very poor in spirit, but I'm not merciful towards people." No, you're melancholy. Big difference. Big difference. You can be melancholy. You can just be a generally depressed person. But if, you're, but if these other things aren't playing out, if you aren't hungering and thirsting after righteousness, if you aren't, then you're just melancholy. Okay? So, sum that up is that it's not, this is a description of the kingdom people. This is not different types of people, some that mourn and some that don't. And, uh, this is a, a complete group. Uh, so, what I want to do right now, that's the, that's, the, that's the list. I hope you understand that. We're talking about the kingdom. We're describing the kingdom. It's a description. It's an indictment. And it's, it's, it's linear. Okay? Uh, and I want to start with the word blessed. And all I'm going to answer to question, I don't have a great, like, formed outline here. So, I'm going to answer this question. What does it mean to be blessed? Blessed, uh, I've got all the Greek words down here. And I usually put them in here because I know... They make me sound smarter to have looked at the Greek. But I, so I'm not going to try to quote them. I, I, I'll just make myself look stupid by doing that, which would defeat the purpose. Uh, in the Greek, <laughs> the word blessed literally means happy. That's what it literally means. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, and I'm reading a book right now about him on the Sermon on the Mount. He, he defines it as divinely happy. Blessed. Divinely happy. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to teach this, one of the reasons I did want to teach this is because this idea of being blessed or divine, divinely happy is something that's really sticking out to me right now, especially with all the turmoil going on in our church. People dying, children who might not make it, uh, all the hardships that are going on in our lives. Uh, I, this stuck out to me because when I saw divinely happy, I was like, that's what I want. I want to be divinely happy. Don't you want to be divinely happy? About a month ago, I was sitting with my, my, my staff team. And I was just sitting there listening to where they, where they were. One of them was frustrated. I was frustrated. All this stuff with us moving and, and being, uh, being relocated and leaving people we loved and going to the unknown. All this, And we were just frustrated. There was just a real sense of, I don't know, um, Depression. I don't want to say it was depression. I don't, I'm not real clear on what that word is, but that we just weren't very happy. And as I sat there and I listened to, first I listened to myself and I evaluated everything I just said, and I listened to the other guys in the room. I was like, really, really, we are children of the King, 
and this is how we feel, something is not right. And so we took two hours that day just off the cuff to look up every, word, every time joy, rejoice, happiness turns up in the Bible, and we started talking about it. And what I started to realize is something I've, been, I've heard for 10 years since I became a Christian. I read John Piper's Desiring God the first year I was a Christian, and I heard him telling me then that God wants me to be happy in Him. I've known that for 10 years, and I feel like it's finally clicking after, after 10 years. But I saw the command to delight. Do you realize it's a command? It is, not some, it is a command to delight in God, to be happy and to rejoice in Him. And that makes me mad. But it's commanded of me. I can't, I can't command me to not cuss. And then I, I can do that. Command me to be happy? I can't do that. I can't, I can't do that. But what, I, what we started to see as we looked at all the times... Look, if you go look at David, just go look at the Psalms. And I, I love David in some ways, and I hate him in others. I love him that he 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 rare, he constantly comes to God mad at him, and like frustrated in life. But then he, he constantly says things like, and that, that that makes me like him because I can relate with him. But he constantly says things like, "I will praise you all the days of my life, and my lips will continually praise you." And I'm like, that makes me mad because I can't do that. I don't, I don't know that. I don't do that. That's not typical in my life. So I have a love-hate relationship with David. But if you go read the Psalms, lots of times David will start out mad at at God and saying saying things like, which we wouldn't do. God, why have you left me? Why have you rejected me? What are you doing? And it's really, it's like he's questioning, what are you doing? And then something always happens in the Psalms. Something always happens. If you ever go read it, at the end of every one of them, I say every, I can't make that statement. But... Most of them, at least, he winds up, if he starts out mad or frustrated, he winds up worshiping God in the end or rejoicing. Joy and rejoicing is always there. So I start, I, start, I want to know why. Why? And if you go read the Psalms, you start looking, there's always something. Number one, I found, th- I found three things throughout the Bible, and this may not be all of them, but three things throughout the Bible that are always connected to God's people rejoicing or finding joy. The first one is God and His character. There's something about God's character that brings him back to rejoicing in who he is. Or it's his own salvation, which you can't really separate the two. But God of my salvation will bring him back. Or there's something about the kingdom that brings him back to rejoice. And they're all outside of himself. God, his his gospel and the kingdom is what brings him back. And so... I got pretty convicted that I wasn't a happy person in Jesus over the last few months. Saw it as sin. You read, do, you think, do, you, do you think that way? I'm not happy in Jesus. That's sin. It is. Because you're commanded to delight. You're commanded to rejoice no matter what. And that can be very like, woe is me. Oh man, I'm not happy. So I'm even worse than I thought I was. Yeah, you are. Your inability to rejoice in a God who loves you and killed his son for you, only shows how deep the corruption of your soul is. That you, that you and I don't walk around in bliss and just, I, I won't say silliness, over the fact that Jesus loves me, shows a deep corruption in our soul. And that could lead you to complete despair and hate your life and just total depression. Or it can lead you to the cross. When you see your moral corruption, if it leads you to the cross, then it will bring happiness. It will bring happiness. You are morally corrupt. All the self-esteem, all the self-help books in the world that you can read might make you convince yourself that you're a good person, but you're not. There's nothing in you good, nothing in your flesh that's good. Jesus in you is all that's good. And the, one of the things I've found in my life is the worst that I see myself in light of who Jesus, in a lot of who God is, the more I value Christ and love Him for saving me. He's, he becomes, my, my, my Christian life can be summed up like this. I thought God was here when I became a Christian and I was here and then I grew a little bit and then I grew a little bit more and I grew a little bit more and I grew a little bit more and as I've grown, all that's happened is the gap has widened and I've seen how great His grace is that He loves me despite it. And so I, I've resolved in my life and in the life of our staff that we are going to be happy because we have a king who loves us. We have a king who's killed his son. I mean, we have a, we have a God who's killed his son for us. 
I'm going to, I got nothing. When, 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 when the crops fail and everything goes bad in my life, the olive, olive tree, whatever Habakkuk 3 says, when he says there's no cattle in the stalls and everything goes wrong and my, all my family dies, and I rejoice because of who God is. So blessed, divinely happy. So once you see that, it, it recurs in every verse. Happy, divinely happy are God's people who are like this. It's, and I want to just leave you with this. It's not okay for the Christian life to just be routine drudgery and obedience. God's will for you is to see and experience Him and be happy. You can't get away from that in the Bible. It calls you to a deeper, a deeper Christian life than just drudgery obedience or routine obedience. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Poor. Literally a beggar without any means. Completely bankrupt. It's actually translated in in Luke a couple of times as a beggar. Uh, We need to see ourselves as beggars. We need to see ourselves as poor in spirit. Uh, Spirit. Let me just give you a real quick Spirit is a, is a disposition of the mind. We actually see ourselves as poor in spirit. Now, everybody's poor in spirit. Everybody is. This is not about whether or not your soul is depraved or not. Everybody is poor in spirit. This is whether or not you sense it. Blessed are those who sense the poorness of their spirit. You are poor in spirit, whether or not you sense it or not. I was in Minnesota. I had a beggar come up to me three times. And as I read this and went back over this, the picture of this guy kept coming up to me. No dignity. Nothing to cling to. He had had no right to ask me for any money. He had no... Dirty, smelly. We want to think that we don't look down on these people. We do. In my heart, I do. I was, I was, I, I knew I was supposed to give him money, and so I gave him three dollars. Uh, but I got a picture there of how how I'm supposed to look like when I come to God. And I think even in I think in our day we have a picture of a beggar, but we kind of had this mentality that they probably could work, and you know, there's something more wrong with them. Well, I think in their day, if you when they hear beggar. Everywhere I see it, it's somebody who's crippled and can't can't do anything for themselves, and they're useless to society. They're worthless. Society has deemed them as worthless. Okay, happy are the people who think they're worthless. This is a this is a weird kingdom he's talking about. This is an upside down kingdom. When you get when you explore the depths of your worthlessness, you'll be happy. That doesn't make any sense. That flies in the face of, of modern thinking. Uh, we are beggars. Uh, we are bankrupt. And this is important because remember, the Pharisees are standing right here hearing this. You're a, beg- you're a beggar. You, you are like the cripple who can't do anything for himself. That is indicting on their lives. And it should be indicting on ours too. But don't don't think we don't have a little bit of the Pharisee in us, if not a lot. Don't think that don't don't be too proud to not realize that we are Pharisaical. We are. I'm a Pharisee at heart in so many ways, and so I have to be humbled. I have to be able to see uh, this this uh, beggar mentality. I want to just quickly define this poor in spirit from the lives of the saints. I'm just going to read some verses from different men. And I want you to see these great men of the faith. I want you to see their spiritual disposition before the Lord. David, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. Right? We know that verse. Everyone agrees that that shows that we we know because what did David just do when he wrote this, sin with Bathsheba. Of course he's broken and contrite. Of course he's a miserable person. He's he has just committed adultery with Bathsheba. First Chronicles twenty nine fourteen. When the collection for the temple was being taken, David prayed, "Who am I, 
And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all these things come from thee, and of thy own we have given thee. In other words, David and his people were giving money to build the temple, a good and virtuous and right thing. And David says, who am I to do this? I can't do this on my own. Who am I, who are my people, that we should be able to offer this willingly? For all things come from thee, and of thy own we have given thee. Even in their virtuous, righteous, righteous, in their right acts, they saw their dependence on God. They saw they had this disposition as a beggar. Uh, Job, uh, one of the verses that came to mind for me uh, when I was when I heard about Carlton and what's going on in his family was at the end of Job. When Job in Job forty two five and six said, "I heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see thee. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in the dust and the ashes." See, Job, all this suffering, what what happened at the end? He got to see God. It was a good thing to see God, and when he sees Him, he he despises himself and repents in the dust and the ashes. Now, Job was a, one of the most righteous men. On earth, was the most righteous man on earth. Was the best man on earth. And, you know, he had a couple of stumbles there, but for the most part, he did better than any one of us would have ever thought about doing. And at the end, after he's persevered through all this, he sees himself as, as repent in dust and ashes, to repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Uh, John the Baptist, I baptize with water, but among you stands one um, whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, uh, the sandals of whose sandal, who, the, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That's what he says about him. And then he says in John 3, he must increase, I must decrease. This is the, this is the, the mentality that John the Baptist had about Jesus. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. He must increase, I must decrease. The tax collector. The tax collector comes to God, comes before God. Tax collector standing far off, he, w- he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, which is really just another way to say happy, made right. Who was beat and mercy, who was beat down? I mean, who, who saw the depravity of his own soul, and, and all he clinged to was the mercy of God, and he went away justified. Or another way to say it would be blessed with the poor in spirit. Blessed with the poor in spirit. The Canaanite woman. Uh, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. That's what she said to him. And to which Jesus responded, "O woman, great is your faith." The centurion, when Jesus was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned to the said of the multitude, I tell you, not ever in Israel have I found such faith. Not worthy for you to have you in my house. I think we learn from the centurion and from the Canaanite and from all these people that poverty of spirit is right at the very heart of what faith is. He said he, he marveled at their great faith. And what they say? I'm unworthy. Poverty of spirit is at the heart of great faith. I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Romans 7.18 We have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. Paul saying it does not, the power does not belong to me. Uh, I am the foremost of sinners. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. I am the foremost of sinners. From these saints, you get the definition of poor in spirit as this. It is a sense of our powerlessness in ourselves. It is a sense of our spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It is a sense of moral uncleanness before God. It is a sense of personal unworthiness before God. It is a sense that if there is to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. When you've got nothing left, 
then God and his grace becomes a huge deal. If you really, if, you, if you're delusional and you think you've got something to hold on to, something good about you, Jesus is not that big. And then mourn. And I, the kingdom of heaven, I'm not going to spend time on that, but he's saying that, that the, those who are poor in spirit, those are the people of the kingdom. They will inherit the kingdom. Uh, those who mourn means to grieve or to wail. And, I, and I'm only doing these two because I think they're very much connected. Uh, to grieve or to wail. And, and I want you to understand, this is, this is over sin. This is not over death and life. This, people mourn all the time who aren't Christians over people who die. We, that, that's a normal way of life. What Jesus is doing here is drawing from what we know about that and saying that is what we sh- how we should feel about our own sin. You should mourn over your sin. I looked it up. looked up the word mourn or mourning uh, in, uh, in the New Testament 10, 11 times, I think, so when it shows up. Half of those times, it's, con- it's, it's with the word weeping. Weeping. Mourning and weeping. Uh, I think, think of physical... Think of the way you mourn when somebody dies or even think about the way we mourn, the, 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 how our heart felt for Carlton and Amy. And at some levels, there, there, there's a hint there, at least a picture there of, of the way we should feel about our own sin against a God who loves us. And those who really mourn this way are comforted. They're the ones who really experience comfort are the ones who really mourn. They're the, the, the really happy people, the blessed people are the ones who mourn over their sin because they're comforted by God. This summer, at first, I thought it, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life, I think. But Heather Thomas and Anna Thomas, their mother was killed in a car wreck. And I was the one that's going to have to tell them. And I went and told Heather first. I knew her better. I went and um, I watched her. as I, I couldn't even get the words out of my mouth. Lose the strength to stand. It's like she, it's like she had to watch the way she responded to the death of her mother. Did something to my heart that I'd never seen before. I felt like I saw real mourning. I felt like I saw real weeping. And as I've read this, my heart has gone back. My, my, I've been reminded of the way she wept over her sin. And then I've been reminded of the way she was comforted by. God. And I, remember I had a conversation with her a couple, of week, a couple of weeks after the funeral and how she said everything's so much more clear now. God is so good. And I, was, I really thought how neat it is for a Christian, the deep mourning, but they're the, they're the only ones who receive real comfort. Because we, you ever thought about that? If you're, not, if you're not a Christian and somebody dies, what, what do you got to comfort you? Nothing. It, it, there's nothing. There's nothing. If you're a Christian and somebody dies, you have the hope of heaven. You have God is gospel in the kingdom. You're comforted. So those who really mourn over their depravity, over their sin, are the ones who are really comforted. They're the ones that are really happy because they know that there's one who's made payment for their sin. Uh, This morning, I think, is here in this passage to to make sure that you realize that this is a, a felt Disposition, not just a factual one. It is felt. The mourning is the expression of the poorness of spirit. And I must beg the question, I think I've answered it, but how does, how does poorness of spirit bring happiness? How does mourning bring comfort? I would say a couple of things. The promise of heaven. I would say the, uh, the, the idea of being comforted but mainly because when we come to the end of ourselves, we're forced to look outside ourselves for something. And then we see Jesus. And we encounter Him. Just like Isaiah. Isaiah said, Isaiah sees God, and then he sees the depravity of his soul, and then he says, here am I, send me. And he's changed. Completely changed. When you... See God, you go outside of yourself, you see the person of Jesus, the greatness of His love for you, and you see the, the depravity of your soul, and you cling to Him. You cling to Him. And then you start to be like Job and say, now I've seen with my eyes. And you start praying like David, Psalm 27.4. One thing I ask is that I may seek you in your temple and gaze upon your beauty. You want to see Jesus. 
Because he's it. He's all you got. When you've got a view of yourself like this and you run to Christ, he's a big deal. He's a big deal. And you will be blessed. You will be happy. Uh, this message is not a message that's supposed to inspire you to feel bad about yourself. Ultimately. Hope you do. Hope you feel like trash at some level. But, it, but if, you, if you just stay there, if you just stay there, you miss it. But if you go to Christ and you're embraced by Him and you see Him and you cling to Him, you're changed and you're happy and you're comforted. So that's why I, I would say this too. Why is this so important for us to hear? One, because I, I want us to see Jesus more. I want us to be... So I haven't figured it out in my life. Sometimes I see, uh, sometimes I see uh, God first and I get a good picture of my sin and how sinful I am. And sometimes I see my sin first and I get a good picture of how God is. So I don't, I don't know how it works, how it all works, but I know that for us to see Jesus, we've got to go deeper in our depravity and we've got we to gotta get a higher view of how good Jesus is. And when we see Him, then we'll be a happy people. We'll be a comforted people. Uh, and why is it a big deal? One, because y'all want you to be happy and know Christ. But two, because we live in a culture that doesn't see that very much. They see morality. If you'll look at the, after the Beatitudes, start uh, in verse 13. After he just talked about what a Christian people look like, then he said, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. Activity that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The world needs to see a picture of the body of Christ like this, who is humble. Because right now, every day on the college campus, the college students are figuring it out. This is not real. This is not authentic. This is just morality. Bump this. I'm not doing this anymore. I can't do this. And that we are in a culture that Christianity is so common. And that what, what is going to distinguish us is not elders. And what is going to distinguish us is not that we believe in predestination. What is going to distinguish us is that we're poor in spirit, that we mourn over our sin, that we thirst after righteousness, that we are merciful, that we are peacemakers. That's what's going to distinguish us. And that's when the world will take notice. And if we're not like that, we'll be useless as salt loses its flavor. So I think it's important. Because I don't know if y'all realize this yet or not, but most of our, most of our harvest field or most of our evangelism is taking place within the church people. It's just in this, at least in small town Jacksonville, Calhoun County, it's not, we're not we're not coming in contact with tons of atheists. Not, not many of them. And so, what's going to distinguish us is that when something authentic happens internally in our lives, and we're changed because of who Jesus is. So, this is why we must be different. Do you have a superior? And so, here's some questions for evaluation, just for your own life. Uh, some maybe some hints that you might not be as poor in spirit as you ought. Uh, do you have any type of superiority, superiority complex? This is hard for me to ask because I'm so hard, so true about my life. Do you think that your personality type, your job, your way of thinking, or even your race is somehow better? Do you think external? Do you, do you think that you are somehow better because of your social class? Do you really think that you're better than the guy who comes up to you and asks you for three dollars on the street? Do you really think that? Gives you gives you some insight. Race. When you go in a when you go in a convenience store that's in a part of town that's a different color than yours, how do you feel? What comes up in your heart? What do do you make off color off color remarks about different types of people, different races? These are insights to the pride. And the lack of poverty of spirit. <laughs> so those are some external things you can look for. Your attitudes towards other people. Uh, when's the last time you mourned over your sin? Wept. When's the last time you wept over your sin? Not, we're not all criers. 
But when was the, the disposition internally that I can't believe I'm this sinful and that Jesus would love me? I can say this. The times in my life that I've, been, I've seen the most sin or been revealed in my depravity, one of the most worshipful times in my life was when I was a, a, a junior in college at Alabama in my apartment and I was reading Tulip because I was arrogant and I wanted to be, I wanted to have everything, I wanted to know Calvinism very well so that I could articulate it well and I really started to understand total depravity and my, what started as an arrogant, probably as an arrogant attempt to attain more knowledge resulted in one of the sweetest worship times in my life when I finally grasped the depravity of my soul, that I was an enemy of God and He loved me anyway. And I was happy that I was a Christian because I'd seen the depths of my sin and I was grateful for God's grace. Are you a beggar? Uh, What are the sins in your life that are respectable? And do you mourn over those? Sure, we're, we're probably not. We're probably not very. We're not necessarily alcoholics. We don't. We're not getting drunk all the time. Most of us aren't having adulterous affairs. Most of us provide for our children. Sure, those those are all good things. Do do we mourn over gossip? Do we mourn over the more acceptable, refined sins? So, good place to start thinking about our condition before God. Look at your life. Are you a beggar? Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I do pray that you would help us to be beggars. I do pray that you would help us to be um, poor in spirit. I pray that you would bless us. I want us to be a blessed people. I want my life to be blessed. I want this church to be blessed. I want us to be poor in spirit. I want us to be a city on a hill. I want the world to to see that you are good and that you are right because of the humility that we have as a people before you, because that we are not self-righteous, because that we, are, we have nothing to offer anybody. Help us come to grips with that reality and let us be changed by Christ because we are, even though we are poor in spirit, and that is our mental disposition, that is who we are. We are also children of the King. And I pray we'd live like children of the King who have been bought and redeemed from being beggars. Help us, Father. Help us to live in light of these things and be changed and that the world might take notice and you might be glorified and that other people might know you. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.